Well, good evening, everyone. It's really nice to be with you. <laughs> you know the studies are going well when by the third study you've managed to retain a quarter of the audience. <laughs> I can imagine what it's going to be like by study, by study five and six. It'll just be me, a couple of Victorians, and I'll be in a perspex box up here. Uh, and everyone else in the audience will be in full PPE. So we look forward to that. Um, no, like obviously, you know, it's unfortunate, but being from Victoria, we're fairly used to it, to be honest. You got to roll with whatever happens and just try and keep going. And that's what we'll try and do. And we'll continue on our story of Peter um, and continue on his life, life of transformation. And our chairman gave us an awesome introduction, didn't he, to what we've looked at so far. He summarised beautifully the path that Peter has tracked to this, this point. And we want to continue his transformation tonight as we look up, look, this subject, look at this subject of take up your cross. Now, it's easy to follow someone, isn't it, when they're very popular and everything's going really well. That's relatively easy and everyone, there's a big crowd behind you and everyone's there and everyone's streaming behind and everything's great. It's a lot harder to continue to follow someone when their popularity wanes. And all of a sudden, things that they're saying are getting very hard and people are becoming disinterested in what they have to say and things get hard. That's a lot harder to stay the course and follow someone when that happens. And that's what happened here in the life of Peter and the life of Christ. By the time we get to John chapter 6, which is... Our story we looked at a couple of days, oh, yesterday, yesterday morning, which was the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus had reached the peak of his popularity. And we saw that yesterday, didn't we? We saw when Jesus had done that amazing miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, that people were all over him. And what did they want to do? Well, he knew that they wanted to make him king. And there was this popularity surge behind the Lord at that point. And everyone thought, this is the man that's going to save us from the Romans. But Jesus knew that that was not to be the case. And he had one year left on, of his ministry. And what we're going to see happen in this last year of his ministry is the popularity of this man begins to decrease. And it decreases quite rapidly. Let's just come to John chapter 6, where we see the turning point of the Lord's ministry here in John chapter 6. And what the, min the turning point was is that the very next day after Jesus had done that amazing miracle, the crowds followed him back over the, the Sea of Galilee and they were eager for him to, to do more miracles because what did they want? They wanted more bread. They saw what this man could do and they were like, wow, we want more bread. But Jesus realised that that's not what it was about and that he had to start changing the way these people think. And make them realise and understand that it's not about the bread. It's not about the temporal food. Because that temporal food will come and go in an instant and it will disappear. He wanted them to see what was really important. And what was really important was the bread of life. And the bread of life was his words. And his words understood and recognised in the life of a person, and what that would result in would be a change of life. And so that's what he told people about in John chapter 6. He told them about his words, and that he needed them to start to take his words in, and not just be overawed by the magic tricks and the miracles that he was doing. And you know what? People didn't like it. People didn't understand what he was talking about. Look what he says in verse 60 of John chapter 6. He says, many, therefore, after he said these things of his disciples. So people who'd been following him said, Lord, I'm one of your disciples. Many of those people, it said, heard this. And what did they say? This is a hard saying. I can't hear it. I don't know what you're talking about, Lord. I understood what you were talking about when you were producing bread and fish from nowhere. But now I don't understand because this is hard. Because this means that you're saying I have to start changing my life and go in a different direction. And look what Jesus says in verse 61. And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured, he said unto them, 
Doth this offend you? It's interesting, that word offend, right? Because it's the same word that Jesus used. Don't, don't turn there because I'll quickly read it for you. It's the same word that Jesus used when he told the parable of the sower. And he talked about the stony ground. You remember the stony ground? The stony ground were those people who, when they first saw the message, they loved the message. And they took it on board immediately. But then verse 21 of Matthew chapter 13 says this, but they had no root in themselves. And they endured for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arose because of the word, by and by they became offended. And that's what happened to this group of disciples who'd been so passionate and interested about the teaching of Christ when they first heard it and when he was doing all these amazing things. But when things got a little bit hard, they found that there was no root in themselves. They'd never actually taken the time to actually put roots down themselves into the ground and establish their faith and what they really believed. And sadly... Look what it says in verse 66 of John chapter 6. And from that time, many of his disciples went back and they no longer walked with him. That must have been sad for the Lord, mustn't it? That must have been devastating for him. All these people who'd followed and now they're turning away in their droves. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them in verse 67, and Jesus said unto the twelve, will you also go away? Are you going to stay with me? Or are you going to leave and walk away too? And then Peter, this is one of his greatest moments, and I'd get a coloured pencil and I'd, get, I'd, I'd colour in Simon Peter here because this is one of, the, one of the key moments where this man is going to change from Simon to Peter on his journey. And when, Peter, when the Lord asked Peter that question, he says this in verse 68, and Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, where are we going to go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You must imagine how, how happy the Lord must have been when he heard the words of Peter that came out of his mouth. And they weren't just flippant words, were they? If you read those words carefully, they are considered words that this man has thought upon. See, Peter wasn't just a man who took on anything. We've already seen that in our studies. We saw that in study one. He wasn't a man that just, when Jesus said, follow me, that he automatically followed. He was a man that wanted to be sure. And so he researched and he investigated and he looked into the words and he listened to, to Jesus to find out if he was the Christ. And he waited up. Look what he said in verse 66. He said, where else are we going to go? I've looked everywhere else. I've looked at the other options. I've seen the other prophets. I've seen the other things that people have said about life and where it can lead. And I've weighed it all up. And you know what I've worked out? You're the Christ. The son of the living God. And you know where he got that from? He hadn't got that from nowhere. He understood the words that Jesus had been saying in John chapter 6. He said, I've got this from your words. And I understand, Lord, what you've been saying. That it's your words that contain eternal life. And I've been listening. And I'm convicted. And I'm confirmed. And I'm confident that you are the Christ. Now, as I said, Jesus must have been so pleased with that, mustn't he? And so pleased with the rest of the disciples that they had come to that understanding. It had taken them a while, but they'd come to that understanding. Well, like we saw yesterday, through the word, through searching the word, through active involvement, and then through trial and persecution, they'd come to understand that he was the Christ. But now what Jesus realised he needed to do 
with these men was he needed to, now that they had that faith, he needed them to learn the importance of holding on to it. Holding fast to that faith for the long term. Because there were things that were going to come into their life that were going to try and steal that faith away from them. And he needed them to be firm and secure and be able to resist no matter what that came upon them. That's what the Lord needed them to do. And that's what we all need to do with our faith. Faith is such a precious thing. And it needs to be cultivated and looked after it. We sometimes treat, I think, flippantly, I talk about myself, but maybe I'm not talking for you, but we treat flippantly perhaps the upbringing that we have and the precious hope that we've been handed, the understanding we've got of God. And when we have that faith and we come to that belief, don't let go of it because it's actually so precious. And Jesus realised that there were going to be things that are going to come into the lives of these men that were going to potentially take their faith. And he wanted them to learn to hold confidently to that confidence that they had. And that's what Paul says in Hebrews chapter 3. In one of my favourite passages in all the Bible, actually, he says this, for we have come to share in Christ. That's what the invitation that we've been given, to share in Christ, in everything that Christ is going to bring to this earth. We've been invited to share in that by faith. And he says, how do you get it if you indeed hold on to your original confidence firm to the end? That's what we need to do. We need to hold fast our original confidence firm to the end, no matter what. And Jesus is going to teach them in in the the passage that we'll look at tonight what we need to do to hold on to the faith that we've been given against opposition that will come and different voices that will come and different opinions that will come, how we hold on to that faith right through then. And he's also going to talk about how we can hold on to our faith and endure through suffering and persecution that might come upon us as well. And he needed his disciples to understand this key message. Now, the opposition of Jesus from this point would only get worse. Not only would his disciples start to leave him, as they already have, but the opposition from the Jewish elders, with only one year out, would become increasingly dangerous. Look at chapter 7 and verse 1. It says there that after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee... For he would not walk in Jewry. He would not walk in Judah. He couldn't go down to Jerusalem anymore because Jesus knew, as soon as I go down to Jerusalem, I'm gone. I'm going to be killed or they're going to be taking me. And so he said, uh, and he says there, because the Jews sought to kill him. And so he had to limit his activities to the north for this next period of time. If we look at our timeline, we're actually got to right to here now. We've seen that's the feeding of the 5,000 we looked at yesterday. And we looked at Peter walking on water. And this is the last year now of the Lord's life. And for the majority of this last year, Jesus spends his time right up the north from Galilee and Galilee up because he's trying to get away from Judah and Jerusalem where there was real danger that his life would be taken and the life of his disciples. And Jesus will focus really in this last year of his ministry almost exclusively on those 12 men and those 12 men alone. It's awesome when you think of what the plan that Jesus had. We, we would think, oh, wouldn't, aren't you annoyed, Jesus, that the crowds have gone away? And I'm sure he was frustrated that they'd gone. But Jesus knew that that would be the case. And it was always his plan to just get these 12 men ready. And if he could just get those 12 men ready, when he was gone, those 12 men would be enough to light a fire that would go throughout the rest of the world. And that's what they did. So he's just got to prepare those 12 men. So in this last year, from Passover 3 to the last one when he died, he's focusing his attention now on those 12 disciples and trying to build in them endurance and patience and understanding. Now, the heat not only was on Jesus, but the heat started to come on the disciples as well. Just turn to Matthew chapter 13. 
And you'll see that the Jews started to target not only the Lord, but they started to target the disciples. Actually, it's in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, they come to Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees, and they say a question to him in verse 2. Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands and they eat bread when they eat bread. So they came up to Jesus and said, what's going on with your disciples here? They're actually transgressing the laws of the fathers and the traditions of the fathers. So all of a sudden, the disciples are now targeted. And they start to feel vulnerable because look what they say in verse 12 after Jesus just wipes the floor with the scribes and Pharisees. They say to Jesus this, Then came the disciples unto him and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended by what you said? Like, Jesus, maybe you should just tone it down a little bit because these guys are getting aggressive and they're not only getting aggressive towards you, they're getting aggressive towards us. So they started to worry for their own situation. And that was increasingly going to be the case as time went on. And then what Jesus does is Jesus then goes, heads north. And he heads up here. This is like the little Lake Hula. I think that's how you pronounce it. Some I'm sure will come and tell me that it's wrong. But that's above the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus went from this point up and he preached to the, to the Gentiles of the area. And he fed the 4,000 around this particular area. And then he took the disciples way up north here, right up towards Mount Hermon. And it's there that we find this passage that we read for us tonight in Matthew chapter 16. And here Jesus has got an important test and important lessons to teach the disciples. And we read that he comes up there in verse 13 of, chapter, of Matthew chapter 16. It says, And when Jesus came into the coasts, of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples. So he came up to the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, and here is that city here. And Caesarea Philippi was a Roman city, all right? Ruled over by the Romans. And previously before that, it was ruled over by the Greeks. But it's interesting that he doesn't actually go right into the city of Caesarea Philippi. It says there in verse 13 that he went to the coasts, which means the suburbs, the outer suburbs of Caesarea Philippi. Why was Jesus going there? Well, he was going there for a very specific reason because the lesson that he's going to try and teach them is actually relevant to something that happened in that spot in the Old Testament. And what that was, we don't have time to go back to it, but we'll just have to briefly go over it so that you can, you can remember it. Here it is here. It was the place of Dan. And it was just a few kilometres outside Caesarea Philippi. And it was in Dan, you might remember, when Jeroboam became king after Rehoboam. So Solomon came to power, Rehoboam comes to power after him, and then after him, Jeroboam comes to power. And what Jeroboam said was, this is really annoying. What's going to happen? Because I'm the northern kingdom, all all of my residents or the people that live in my kingdom are going to go down south to Jerusalem every year and they're going to worship. And I'm going to lose people to them. And so he said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up here, right up in the north in this place called Dan, I'm going to set up a false idol there, a golden calf, and that's going to be a place of worship. And what he did was he he included a lot of the stuff from the festivals of God, like the Passover and the Feast of Pentecost. He had all the ones, but he just changed them slightly. He mixed truth and he mixed error. He mixed man's opinion with God's opinion. And he created like a, a sort of truth, but not quite. And he got everyone to come up and go there. And many people went down south and said, no, we want to hold on to God's law and God's, what, he, what we believe in, to, believe in, and listen to him. But many ended up listening to the opinions of that man and stayed up there worshipping in Dan and lost the truth. And Jesus took his disciples specifically to that area to teach them this lesson. And he asks them a question when he gets up there. 
And that question is in verse 13. He says, who do men say that the Son of Man is? I want to ask you, I want to do a survey. Who do you, who does the 12 disciples, who do men, what, what's the general opinion out there of me? What's the general popular opinion about who I am? And this is what they say, verse 14. And they said, some say thou art John the Baptist, and some say Elias, and others say you're Jeremiah, and some of them say you're one of the prophets. Interesting, isn't it, that no one anymore was saying that he was Jesus Christ. They had all these different other opinions of who he was. Some said he's John the Baptist, and that theory actually came from Herod. Herod was like, who is this guy, right? I reckon he's John the Baptist, maybe, come back from the dead. And other people had all these different ideas, and they mixed up all these different ideas about who this man actually was. And Jesus had just warned them about that previously in verse 12. Look what he says. Then understood they how that he bade them to beware the leaven, not the beware of the leaven of the bread, but the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. In Mark's record, he says this, I want you to watch out. I want you to be careful of the leaven or the teaching of the Pharisees and the teaching of Herod. And he calls it leaven because it spreads easily. Leaven, that's what it does through bread, doesn't it? And Jesus was warning the disciples to be careful about the opinions of these men because they, their teaching would weave into the truth that he was teaching and corrupt it. You've got to be very, very careful of that to hold on to my message that it's true. And by this time, their message had started to take an influence, hadn't it? Because you notice that no one is now saying that he's Christ. Now, why weren't they? You remember yesterday, like this is only six months ago, they were all saying that he was Christ and they all wanted him to be king. They thought, yes, he's definitely the Christ. What changed? Why weren't they saying that he was the Christ now? Well, look what had happened. John chapter 9. The authorities had started to crunch down and squeeze down on the people. And they said the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess that Jesus was to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So this was already a big question, wasn't it? That was a big thing back then, to be put out of the synagogue. That was your whole life. That was the life of your family. And they said, if you say that Jesus is the Christ, you're not coming in the synagogue. Now, that that made things hard, didn't it? That made things hard for the people. And many people had backed away and said, oh, I don't know, I don't believe that he's Christ anymore. And look at this verse in John 12. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed on him. So many people actually did believe on him. Even the the higher echelon of the authorities believed on him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. They were scared of the opinions of men. And it backed them into a corner and they didn't want to believe in Jesus anymore. And it goes on to say why that was the case. Because they would be put out of the synagogue. And for they love the glory that comes from men more than the glory that comes from God. That's what made them not confess. They were worried about the opinions of men more than the opinions of God. And no one was now saying that he was the Christ. And then Jesus turns the question, the same question, to the disciples. And he says, well, who do you say I am? And he knew, didn't he, that just a few months earlier, that we already looked at that passage, that, Jesus ha- that Peter had said he'd been convinced that Jesus was the Christ. And Jesus wanted to test these men to see whether the popular opinion around them, that the voices of the authorities and the voices of the masses had started to make an impression upon their faith. Would they be swayed? Would their opinion be changed by that of popular opinion? It's easy, isn't it, to be swayed by popular opinion? We don't even realise we're doing it sometimes. 
I always think about dress, like, you know, jeans that we're wearing. Like, one minute I'm wearing skinny jeans, next minute, you know, I'm wearing fat jeans and baggy jeans. It's like, who told me to do that? I just got taken along by, by the, the thrust of public opinion. And it's easy to be swayed by public opinion and public thought. And, you know, that's a big challenge for us today. Because the world that we live in, in Australia anyway, the public opinion is rapidly changing. And it's moving away from the principles of God, which it did have as some kind of establishment even 50 years ago, and it's moving rapidly away from those opinions to its own opinions. Look at this graph here, right? This is the major religious affiliations described in the Australian census. And the last one here is 2016. We just did another one this year. The results haven't come out. There's a pretty clear trend, isn't it? This one here is the amount of atheists who don't believe in God. And this blue one here are the people who profess an understanding of God. You know, it's got down nearly to 50%. And I guarantee next time, when the census comes out and the results come, that it's going to be less than 50%. And that's a massive change. And you know what's getting quicker and quicker and quicker? Have you noticed that? Over the last five years, have you noticed how much, out, how outdated the opinions of God feel and, and the stances that God makes and the recommendations and the principles that he makes? We're starting to feel like we're aliens in this world. And it's easy to be swayed by those opinions, isn't it? Just like it was easy for these men to be swayed by the opinions of their day. And Jesus asks these men, who do you say I am now? Do you still believe I'm the Christ? And who is it that stands up? Who is it that voices his opinion, clear and, and easy and beautiful as ever, unswerving in his belief? Well, it's Simon Peter. And he says to Peter, and uh, he says to Jesus, Verse 16, and Simon Peter, call that in, answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he knew that those words, if he'd said them out in public, would get him thrown out of the synagogue, but he didn't care. He believed it with all the fibre of his being. He was confident, he was sure that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. That must have made the Lord happy, mustn't it? That that man had built that faith and held on to that faith despite that opposition that came against him. And he says that to Peter, verse 17. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah. That, mean, that word means happy. Happy are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. You have found the key to happiness in life. And that is the understanding of my message of who I am and my God as the one and only living God. And your faith has been able to, 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 to exist even when others have said that it's not true. You've managed to hold on to that faith. And he was so pleased with that. How was that the case? What had Peter done that had been able to make him be able to hang on against that public opinion. That's important to know, isn't it? Because we're living, as we said, in that kind of environment. And we've got those kind of pressures of those kind of opinions that come upon us every day. They come upon us everywhere, don't they? How do we hold on to our faith like Peter did? Well, Jesus says to him how he got it and how he held on to it. Look what he says, verse 17. For flesh and blood has not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. He says, you want to know, Peter, where you got that faith from? You didn't get it from listening to flesh and blood, man's opinions. And you managed to push those out, and how you did that was you listened to my Father. And by listening to my Father and continually listening and to listening to Jesus' words as he preached, it kept confirming to Peter his faith 
that he held so true, kept confirming his belief and his understanding. He hadn't let human opinion dominate the way he thought. And that's what we need to do as well. And we've got to be careful of this. We've got to beware of unlimited, because we do these days, we have unlimited access to human opinion. Like never in the history of the world have you been able to just at like the the touch of a button, go onto your phone and just connect to like any human opinion on any subject you ever can in like, you know, two or three seconds. And that's what you can do, can't you? And you can trawl YouTube and these sites for hours, listening to these unbelievable philosophies from these people like over and over again. And some of them are awesome. And they're unbelievable. And they change your world and they change your life. But God says, or Jesus said here, they won't lead you to truth. And there's only one thing that will lead you to truth. And that's by listening to my father. Listening to my father. And you notice that it has to be not just listening once, but it has to be a continual listening. And that's what Peter had done. He hadn't just been convicted in his faith and said, I'm done now and I'll just go and live my life as I please. He'd continued in his faith to listen to his master continually. And there's the secret to holding on to faith. It's regular listening to God. Regular building of our faith. And isn't that what Paul said in Romans 10 verse 17? He said, that's how faith is cultivated. He says, then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that hearing needs to be a continuous hearing in our life. We can't let that hearing stop because otherwise we'll be influenced by these other opinions. I used to think that. Like, I used to think, surely if, if like a young person grows up into the meeting and they, they come to understand God and, and the gospel and, and they see the prophecies of God and they understand everything, surely if they do that at a young age, they'll never forget it and they'll never lose their faith for the rest of their life regardless of what they do. You know, that's not true. A very, very close friend of mine left the truth about 20 years ago and he knew the truth. He used to give talks about the truth. He understood the prophecies of God. He knew everything about God and he had a faith. But just this last couple of years, he contacted me. He doesn't live in Australia anymore. He contacted me, right? About what was going on in the world. And he said, what what does all this mean? And I was like, surely you remember, like, You used to give talks on this stuff. Like You used to know all the ins and outs of what was going to happen and who God was and how the kingdom was going to come. And it was gone. And he doesn't know any of it. And I pray God that he'll learn it again and build up his faith again. But at the moment, it's gone. Because he stopped listening. He stopped hearing what God was trying to tell him. We need to continually listen. Continually listen to God. Because that's how we can retain our faith. Now, because Peter was able to do that, Jesus was so pleased with him. And he had a very special task that he wanted to give this man, Peter, to do as a result of his conviction. And he says that in verse 18. He says, And I say unto you that thou art Peter. He plays on his name here. Peter, which means rock. You are Peter. You are a rock. You're developing into that rock, Peter. You're becoming stable, firm foundation. And he says, because of that, what I'm going to do is upon this rock, and the rock that he's talking about is your understanding that you've got now of God as the one living God and Jesus, his son, and he's planted the gospel from that. That's the rock that you've come to understand. And upon that, Peter, I'm going to build my ecclesia. You are going to play an integral role, Peter, in building the ecclesia of God from this point forward. And you know what he says? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
which basically means that death will not even prevail against it. The program that you're going to be involved in, Peter, the building of the ecclesia that you're going to be involved in is going to grow and grow and it's going to last forever. Now, it might not have seen that, that uh, way sometimes for Peter. He might have thought, you know, a couple, even six months later, that this work that he was involved in with Jesus Christ was history and it was never going to happen ever again. But sure enough, the ecclesia built. And Jesus said it's going to, there's nothing that will prevail against it. And that's true today. And we might look sometimes at the communities that we live in and think, is God still here? Do people still want to hear God? Well, Jesus said nothing ultimately is going to prevail against it. Eventually, like that little seed, he said, that grew tiny and grew into a huge tree that filled all the earth. That's what the ecclesia is going to be like. It will prevail. And Peter was going to be the start of it. And he said, how are you going to be the start of it? Verse 18, he says, I say unto sorry, verse 19, I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I'm going to give you the keys. And what do keys do? Keys unlock things. And what's he going to unlock? Well, he's going to unlock for all these other people the mystery of the gospel to understand who Jesus Christ was. God says, Jesus says, I'm going to give you that job, Peter. What an important job that was. You know, the Jews had had that job. John John 12 says, Woe unto you, he said, lawyers, for you have taken away the keys of knowledge. They had the keys, the Jewish elders, and they'd not give them to other people. It says, you've entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in, you have hindered. So Jesus was going to take the keys away from the Jews, and he was going to give the keys to this man, Peter. And Peter was going to take that message, and we're going to see that in our last study. And he opens up the understanding to the Jews of who Jesus was, And then he's going to be the key man to open up that same message of hope to the Gentiles when he goes to the house of Cornelius. That's the special role that Peter was given. But it wasn't going to happen yet. There was still more that Peter needed to know. And it says that in verse 20. Then changed, charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Christ. I mean, Peter just said, you're the Christ. And he says, don't say anything yet. And why did Jesus say, don't say anything to yet? Because he knew it was too dangerous to say that now. And he also knew that they didn't quite yet have the full picture of who Christ was. And he needed to illuminate to them the last piece of who Jesus really was. And it was an important part of the puzzle that they yet did not understand. And that was that Jesus, who was the Messiah, would be someone that would come and would suffer. And so Jesus starts to outline this to them in verse 21. And from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. So he outlines to them that they need to be, of what was going to happen. And this is the first time that they'd heard of this. The first time they'd found out about this information, about what was going to happen, that he would have to suffer. And Jesus would go on to tell them in detail at least four other times of what would have to happen to him. And he got down to such minute detail, he described exactly what was going to happen to him on that night. That he would be suffer, that he would kill, that he'd be spat on, that he'd be mocked, that he'd be, that he'd be hit. And when it came to the time, they didn't understand. They still didn't understand. And we might look sometimes at the disciples and think, you guys are so thick, you, you don't, you're not getting it. Jesus is laying it out pretty clearly. Why do you still not understand what's got to happen to him? But we're the same in many ways. And we've been told, haven't we, in, in our era, 
that what's going to happen to us is when the Lord comes, he's going to come as a thief in the night. And he's going to come at a time when we think not. And we've read those words so many times. But are we going to be caught out in the same way the disciples were? I remember a year and a half when this world suddenly changed, right? And it changed for all of us in that moment of panic, like Easter 2020, right? With all that we knew about, you know, thieves in the night and stuff. How many of us just panicked about what the world was, what was going on with the world? We were stocked, right? We had so much toilet paper, so much stuff. It was unbelievable. So we can't be too critical of the disciples. They... Would, have, would come to this illumination and they would come to this illumination afterwards. But at the moment, it was a great shock to them. And so much of a shock was it that Peter actually takes Jesus aside. Look what he does in verse 22. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be so unto you. So he took Jesus and he took him aside, away from the rest of the disciples, And he says to him, Jesus, what are you saying? Don't say this. Be it far from you, Lord. This is not going to happen to you. There's no way that this will happen to you. I know things are a bit rough at the moment and your popularity is not that great, but it's going to be okay. And what you're doing by saying these words, this is what I can imagine Peter perhaps was thinking, but what you're doing by saying these words is you're discouraging the rest of the disciples. Don't say this, Peter. And Jesus comes out very strongly to Peter. And he says to him, verse 23, but he turned and said unto Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offence unto me, for thou savourest not the things of God, but those that be of men. Get thee behind me, Satan. That's the same thing he said to the tempter, you might remember. When the tempter said to him, Jesus, all you've got to do is bow down to me, and I will give you all of the world and the kingdoms of it, and all the glory that will be in this present world. And what he was saying really was, you don't need to go through the suffering that you're going to endure. You can just take the glory now. And Peter was saying the same thing. And he says, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offence unto me. And that word offence means a stumbling stone. You're standing in my way. This is not an option for me, Peter. He'd said in those words, this must be, I must do this, I must go and suffer, and you're standing in my way. And then he says why he had come to this conclusion. Peter, he says, for you are savouring not the things of God, but the things of men. You are thinking in the ways of men, Peter, and not in the ways of God. That word savorous means to set your mind on, to set your affections on. And essentially Jesus was saying to Peter, you've got the wrong focus here, Peter. You're focusing on the here and now, but your affections need to be on the future aspirations that will come in the kingdom of God. That's what all the servants of God need to have. Let's just quickly come to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1 to 2, Peter talks about these two affections and he uses the same word in verse 2, affection, as what that word savorous was that he spoke to Peter and he says this, If then you are risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on his right hand, the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above and not on things of earth. For you are dead And your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. 
So Jesus says, as a disciple, we need to have a new perspective in our life. And our perspective needs to be on the future and not on the here and now. It's like someone like Abraham, who was a man who we know looked to a future city. And when it came to decide between, when when he said to Lot, look out amongst all those things, Abraham didn't care what part of the land he had because his mind was set on the future. And poor Lot, for a period of time, lowered his eyes and got fixated on the temporal. And Jesus said, as a disciple, we need to make sure that our affections are always on the future. And Peter needed to be aware of this. Because what, Peter, what Jesus was trying to teach Peter at this point was that as, as trial and suffering would be part of the life of the Lord and the very near future would be part of his life. As a fellow disciple and follower of Jesus, Peter also would need to suffer and would go through persecution. And that was not far away from him either. And Jesus needed to tell him that this was the case. And he needed to prepare his disciples and be ready for the fact that suffering would be a part of their discipleship. And Jesus also needed to tell us that as well. And he does that, if we go back to Matthew chapter 16, in these final verses... Sorry, I just looked at the time. It's 8.32. I've probably got maybe 10 minutes left, right? So just, it's an important little section. So just, you know, regroup yourself and just prepare that 10 minutes will be done, all right? I'm not going to plough you on till, you know, what is it? I'm not going to plough you on till 9.30 or not even 9, right? So Jesus turns to his disciples and look what he says in verse 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me. So he now turns from talking to Peter and now he puts his focus and says, look, not only is this an important message for you, Peter, it's actually an important message for all of us to understand. All of us have got to come to understand this point. If any man wants to come after me, there is going to be a level of suffering and persecution which is associated with the following of me. And he describes that in verse 24 by saying this, that if any man will come after me, he needs to deny himself. That's going to be a key part of your discipleship. And the denial of ourself is is something pretty radical, isn't it? It's something completely against who we all are naturally. We all want to look after ourselves, And the world is all about you and what you can do and where you can go and who you can be. And Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, it's a radical departure from that. And it's going to be about denial of yourself. And actually following after what I'm like. And what was Jesus like? Well, he was a man that was all about others. 100%. And Jesus says, that's what I want you to be like as a disciple. I want you to deny yourself. And he says, that's going to involve some sacrifice. And he says, take up your cross. And that meant sacrifice. And that was a symbol of sacrifice. And Jesus sacrificed every single day of his life in giving himself to every person that he'd come across. And he did that his whole life right to the point where his ultimate sacrifice was he gave his life away. Jesus says, I want you to emulate me in that way. You might not go to your death because you notice there what he says is he says, take up his own cross. Everyone's trial in life and suffering that they might endure in life will be different. But Jesus wanted to be honest with us and say that that's part of being my disciple. There will be trouble. There will be trial. But I want you to follow me. Because I'm not telling you something to do 
that I'm not going to do myself fully. And we have that beautiful picture in the New Testament of that beautiful picture of discipleship, don't we? When Jesus was walking to the cross, as he made his way up that hill, a man beaten and destroyed, and he walks up to Calvary, and they grab a man, and his name was Simon. It's interesting, isn't it? And he took his cross with him. And there's the picture of Jesus walking up the cross to Calvary. And Simon, his follower, walking behind. That's discipleship. And we can't do, of course, everything that the Lord did. The Lord did amazing, unbelievable things for us. But Jesus says, I just want you to follow me to pursue me, to try and be like me. And where do we follow him? Well, Revelation 14 says, these are they. This is talking about the people ultimately who end up being in the kingdom. He says, these are they which followed me. They followed the lamb. And where did they follow me? They followed me wherever he went. Wherever that trail might have led, these followers followed me. You know, Jesus walking along one day. And a man came up to him and he said this, I'll follow you wherever you go. I'll be your disciple. Can I follow you, Lord? And look what Jesus says to him. He turns around to him and says to him this, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And what was Jesus telling that man? I'd love you to follow me. I want you to follow me. I love you. But I want to be up front with you and let you know that it's not always five-star accommodation where we're going. Sometimes the road will be tough. And I want you to be aware of that in your pursuit of me. You see, following Christ, brothers and sisters and young people, will not always be easy. At times, in fact, Jesus says it will be very tough. Um, At times, it will be lonely. At times, you may face rejection or disapproval, sometimes even from your own friends or sometimes even ostracisation from your own family. And some people have done that to hold to Christ, haven't they? Some people, to go to Christ, have left everything behind. Sometimes you'll be in opposition to what the world says. And sometimes standing up for Christ in those situations might mean harassment. And sometimes in those situations, to stand up for Christ, you know what that's meant for people? It's meant physical persecution. And you know, there's our brothers and sisters right now in this world, some in Turkey and some in Iran, that face that every day just to hold on to Christ. And Christ said, I know. And I want you to be aware of that. That following me might not not always... Be easy. I need you to be prepared. I need, you to be to, I need you to be ready for wherever the road might lead. Wow. You imagine Peter and the disciples listening to this. This is, this is different now, isn't it? This is different from my calling when it was miracles and Jesus was doing these amazing things and then we were preaching and we were going out and everyone was, was accepting and it was all these great times. And now Jesus is saying that there's going to be hard times and there's going to be suffering. But Jesus is very quick to move, to show the disciples what they needed to do what their mindset needed to be, what his mindset was that helped him to move forward regardless of what they did to him. And he gives them three little clues of how to develop eternal perspective. And that's what he wanted them to develop, an eternal perspective. And if they could develop this eternal perspective as he had done, It would mean that they could resist all types of suffering and all types of pain. And so he gives them three little clues. 
He says in verse 20, 25, for whosoever will save his life will lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. The first one he, he describes for us is he says, it's worth following me because life is fleeting. And life is fleeting, isn't it? You might not think it, right, these guys down here. But life goes like that. Honestly, it seems like, like just yesterday that I was sitting down here. In fact, I wasn't sitting down there. I was sitting up there, probably in the back corner, right? Sitting up back up there, and I had, you know, black hair that was thick as anything, right? And I was just moving my hands through that beautiful, big, thick hair. That was 25 years ago. And now look at it. Right, it's not even grey anymore. My, my daughter, my six-year-old daughter said, Dad, your hair's white. And that 25 years went like that. And Jesus says that if you want to hold on to life now, it'll be gone in a second. And once it's gone, it's gone. But he says, whosoever will save his life Sorry, whosoever will lose his life will find it. And I love the way he writes this, actually. He says, whosoever would save his life will lose it, but whosoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You notice he doesn't say save, he says, you'll find it. So if you throw your lot lot in with me and you give me your life, you'll find life. And Jesus wasn't just saying that you're going to find eternal life. He was saying that as well. We will get eternal life in the kingdom. But he says, you'll find the real purpose and meaning of what life is about. And that's what the truth's about. And that's why it's so awesome. And that's why it answers so many questions. Because it's not just about the kingdom as awesome as that is. It shows us how God wanted us to live from the very beginning. His beautiful character and who he is. And if you throw your lot in with Christ, he says, you'll find life. That'll be the greatest thing you've ever done. That word find is the same word, find, as when that man went and found the pearl of great price. And when he found it, he was filled with joy. That's what finding the truth is like. Hold on to it. The next thing he says is, there's no lasting profit in the here and now. For what is a man profited if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Even if life goes absolutely brilliantly and you're, you're the greatest person that's ever lived and you're the richest person that's ever lived. Someone like Elon Musk, who's worth $285 billion. And I can't keep up with the stuff he's got. He's got rockets he's flying. He's going under the ground, right? He's got cars. He's got tech. He's got absolutely everything. Jesus says, even if you have the whole world, would he give it all up at the end just to keep going? Just for one more day? I noticed that Jeff Bezos, the second richest guy, he just brought this company to try and look at, look into how to live forever. Because he's a little bit older, he's about 65. Because they would give it up, wouldn't they? Because life is so precious. And Jesus was right. There's no lasting profit in here and now. And so finally, Jesus says, Focus on the kingdom. Verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and they shall reward every man according to his work. Jesus paints a picture there of his own vision of the kingdom. And we haven't got time, but it's beautiful. If you go back to Daniel chapter 7, that's where he's getting his vision from. It was a vision of him meeting with his Father and ultimately what the kingdom of God was going to be like. And that's the vision that he had in his mind. And Jesus says, I want you to build that into your mind. Because if you can build an eternal perspective and a vision of the kingdom, then you'll be able to endure anything that comes upon you. You know, Jesus quoted those very words in the last second when the Jews condemned him to death. You remember he said, 
and you'll see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power. And he knew that any moment what was going to happen to him is they were going to beat him and they were going to kill him and he was going to suffer more than any man had suffered before. But he knew what was ahead because he had a vision. And Jesus says that's what you need to do as disciples is cultivate your vision. And this is not from Psalm 49, but this will be our last passage. It's actually from Hebrews 12. Let us run with endurance that race that is set before us. Look to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith. And how did he endure all of those things that would come upon him? The joy that was set before him. He endured the cross despising the shame and he's now ready at the right hand of God ready to return three steps for holding fast you need to stand against popular opinion and to do that you need to keep listening to God's word every day you need to expect that suffering and persecution will come because life won't always be easy And finally, you need to develop an eternal perspective. 